let me invite you to actually sit down. We are, um, today we are concluding our series, 10 Words for Lent, which is our Lenten look at God's law. And uh, so for the reading of the law, we are going to um, read a truncated, a shortened form of the Ten Commandments, then we'll respond to it. And I just want to orient you, as we respond to that law, I want us to particularly cue in on the second sentence, which is going to kind of form the idea for what we're talking about today. The law teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior, is what it said, is what it says. See, law-keeping is really important for the Christian believer. We know that it exposes our heart, the law, and so it shows us that we could never live up to God's commandments, but then God does something. He changes our hearts. He gives us a new operating system so that now a Christian who's renewed by the Spirit actually learns how to love the law. That's what's going to happen when we read Ezekiel 36. So now let's take, turn our attention first to the reading of God's law before we then read the Ezekiel passage. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Our response to the law from the New City Catechism. Christian, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. Let me invite you now to stand as we read Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers." And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. 
Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also uh, I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these are difficult passages. It's hard to ask of you that we would love the law, the law more. So, Lord, we pray that in loving you, we would get to know your character that's displayed for us in your law. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would come down, renew us, help us to praise you, help us to hear, give us ears that are deep so that your word might penetrate into the very core of who we are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I know I have a lot of car stories. I'm going to add another car story to the pile, a little background. My 2006 Toyota Corolla was my wife's car in college, and for the longest time, it just stayed on her father's insurance. Now, that arrangement worked really well for us for 17 years. It didn't cost a lot for him to float that very uh, cheap payment for us, but it all came to a head last Saturday. Might also not be a surprise to you to know that I didn't get my registration renewed on time. I had a lot of things going on in the last couple of months. I actually tried to get it done, and then, of course, there was something wrong with the car that I needed to fix, and so I left and didn't get it fixed, and months went by, and now, or at least not now, thankfully I've done it since then, it was overdue like four or five months. So last Saturday, I get pulled over by a police officer who notices that my registration has expired. So I pull over, and I give my license, and I go through my glove box to try to find my insurance, and of course, it's not there. So I frantically text my in-laws, please take a picture of the insurance and send it to me so that I can provide proof that I'm not driving this car without insurance. And so I give the license, say, look, I, I, it's coming, I'm sorry, I don't have it right now. And the police officer takes my license back, does some due diligence. All of a sudden, two other police cars pull up behind it. Okay, what's going on then? Another police officer is coming on my right, the one's coming on my left. They say, sir, we're going to need to ask you to get out of the vehicle. Okay, it's okay, I know this is my car, I've had it for a long time. I get out of the vehicle, I walk back, I've got my keys and my phone in my hand, I go to put them in my pockets, the police officer, sir, I'm going to have to ask you not to put your hands in your pockets. Okay, I'm a little worried now. 
Apparently, when they were running the VIN on my car, it wasn't showing up in the system. And so, without proof of insurance and no record that this car belongs to me, it's very possible they think that I have engaged in sort of some sort of grand theft auto. Maybe in my car's case, it would be petty theft auto. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, at the end of this ordeal, the other cop realizes that it, the first cop's system wasn't working. That's why the VIN number wasn't pulling up in her computer. They were able to verify that this car was, in fact, my car that I owned. And after just a $20 fine and a renewed registration, I was on my way. Whew. My goodness. I know most of us would say that we need laws and that we're thankful for the police force. And we should say that. We are thankful that we are not in a chaotic society. We're thankful that we have a legal system that helps run this country. And I am very thankful for our public servants. Absolutely. But it's another thing when you're in the moment, isn't it? As they were looking up my VIN, one of the police officers, the one who was guarding me from putting my hands in his pockets, decided that it was the perfect time to give me a lecture. You know, if you would do the little things in life, then you'll go far in life. <laughs> and it was everything that I could do, spiritually and emotionally, to just sit there and receive it. Like, I wanted to be like, do you know who I am? <laughs> right? Like, I wanted to say that. I pay my taxes, I keep the law, at least the big ones, I guess. The point is this, we support the law in theory. <laughs> we like the law in theory, but when confronted with, us, with it, most of us chafe, don't we? We're irritated, we push back, we go from somewhere between mild annoyance to absolute frustration. Now, I'm not saying that you need to ecstatically shake hands with every police officer that pulls you over. Thank you, sir. But the analogy is helpful. We might not love the man-made laws that are put into practice by fallible people, but what's our excuse when our hearts are just as frustrated and just as obstinate with God's holy law that He puts in place because He cares for us? What's our excuse? How many of us get frustrated at His commands? But look at what the psalmist says. This is printed for you in the very beginning of your bulletin. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And the question for us is simple. Can I say that about God's law? Could I say that about God's law? Do I delight in the law of the Lord? Look, if God's law is an expression of His character, then how could Christians not love God's law? And so, along those lines, we're just going to ask three questions that really come to us from Ezekiel's passage here. First, why should we love the law? Why should we love it? Second, how can we love the law? Isn't it the law that condemns us? Third, to what end do we love the law? 
Those are printed for you in your bulletins. So first, why should we love the law of God? Why should we, uh, excuse me, why should we love that law? We should love the law of God so that we might honor the Lord. It's kind of simple. We can't separate the law from the lawgiver. Look at verse 22. You have profaned, this is God speaking to His people, you have profaned my holy name among the nations, God says. And here's the background. Ezekiel is prophesying in a time when the nation of Judah is in exile. And so what has happened is that a number of years before, God has saved His people from slavery. We've read the law, given them His law, set them up in a place called the promised land, and now they are meant to show forth who God is by the way that they live. But over the last 400 years or so, they haven't done that well. In fact, they look a lot like the nations around them. Their practices are really no different from the other Canaanites. The layman's translation of verse 22 would be this, you were supposed to represent my character to each other and the people groups around you, but instead you are completely misrepresenting my character. In your sexual practices, you make me look unfaithful, God is saying. In your monetary practices, you make me look miserly. In your Sabbath practices, you make me look like a slave driver. In your dealings, you make me look manipulative. In your political discourse, you make me look bloodthirsty. I think that should sober us a little bit. Do we think that American Christians are that much better than the Israelites of this time? You would struggle to make a case that self-professed Christians in America have a better moral track record as a whole than the people of Israel. And for that, we should mourn. I know we have a lot of ways that we explain it away, right? Well, I'm generous with my personal finances, but business is business. If you met me, you'd find me to be a kind person. But the political landscape in America is just so important right now that we can't play nice. In public, I have a happy family. Why does it matter what I do in the privacy of my home? So, in verses 22 through 23, God promises to act. He's going to do something, not for our sakes, but for the sake of His holy name. See, God knows that what this world needs is a clear vision of His moral character. A world that lacks God's moral vision would descend into chaos. So, He promises to vindicate His holy name twice in this passage. That is, He's promising that He's going to prove Himself and His character right over and against the people of Israel. Now, by way of illustration, I just want us to imagine a scenario. Let's say the U.S. ambassador to Russia, let's think about him, right at the beginning of the Ukrainian conflict. The U.S. president, the Congress, the people of the world has denounced the Russian invasion, but the U.S. ambassador has decided to go rogue. No problem. Sure, invade Ukraine that's okay. In fact, the U.S. will support you. We'll give you tanks and airplanes to aid you in that invasion. Of course, there would be a global outcry. America's reputation would be deeply tarnished, wouldn't it? 
How do you think the president might vindicate the U.S.? What do you think he'd do? That U.S. ambassador is getting fired, right? Not only is he getting fired, he's probably coming back to the United States on criminal charges, treasonous charges. It begs the question for us. God is saying, look, you guys are totally misrepresenting me before the nations. I told you to do one thing, you're doing something else. How will God vindicate His holy name? How does He do it? Does He take the people? Does He kick them out? Does He kick them to the curb? Does He kill them? Does He start over? No, this is what He does. He promises to give us a new heart. He's going to double down on His promises. I promise I'm going to give you a new heart. That brings us to the second question. How do we love God's law? How could we ever love it? God does what we cannot do for ourselves. He gives us a heart that's ready to love God's law. I'm just going to read verses 24 through 27 again. It's beautiful, these promises. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, if we were listening to that first point a little bit, it might have rattled some of us. We honor God by obeying Him sounds a whole lot like legalism, doesn't it? that we're earning our salvation in some way by our good works. But that's not what it's saying. Obedience is not legalism when we know that God works to save us first. That's what's going on in verses 24 through 27. God is saying, I am going to completely and fully save you. I'm going to completely and fully save you. That precedes every good work that we will ever do. Ephesians 2, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ezekiel is describing the new birth. He calls His people into a community of faith, verse 24. He purifies us completely from our past sins and mistakes, everything that we'll ever do. He gives us a new heart in verse 26. He animates His people with His very own Holy Spirit, Spirit, His presence with us, verse 27. And He does all these things solely and completely by grace. Only then, after the new birth is completed in us, can we begin to walk in His statutes. See, here's, here's something important. Legalists, legalists, people who are more interested, it seems, in God's law, don't actually love God's law at all. They use the law. They manipulate the law. They like it when the law makes them look good and it benefits them. Their motivation for law-keeping is not thankfulness for what God has done, but self-preservation or pride or fear. Maturing believers, however, recognize that the law is good for them. It's good for me because it's the manifestation of the beautiful and good character 
of God Himself. Jesus, in Matthew 5, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Or Paul, in Romans 1.5, says this, that his call to be an apostle is, quote, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. I was talking to a friend about this this week, this, these verses here, and she said that she used to pray this Scripture verse all the time because she was concerned that she didn't have a new heart. I'm not sure if I have a new heart, but I want to assure you if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have a new heart. His Spirit is within you. God is not going to take your heart of flesh away and give you back a heart of stone. He's not going to do that. He has already secured your salvation. And it's from that place of security that we actually begin to learn how to love God's law. So now with a renewed heart, we're invited into a process of growing Look again at verse 25. We have already been cleansed. We've already been forgiven. Like, how do you even begin the journey of growth in the Christian life? The only way is by believing every single day that everything ugly and sinful and gross about you has already been atoned for. When you know that, and when you believe that, you can begin again. You can dust yourself off by grace and try again. If I don't know that about myself, I'm going to run away from morality. I'm going to run away from thinking about what it means to be good or righteous. Because all that will ever do for me is to condemn me. But when I know, when I know that He has already cleansed me, then I can begin again every day. And then look at verse 26. God's given us a new heart. The new heart is like a new operating system within the Christian, right? It's like our DNA. It's how God designed us to run, right? So, you now have an integrity operating system. So, the way the program of your life runs smoothly is if you're honest. You now have a Sabbath operating system. The way that your life now runs smoothly is if you Worship and rest in Jesus. You now have a system, an operating system of generosity. The way your life now runs well is if you're a giver. You give of yourself. Now look, I'm not trying to oversell this. We can't oversell this. I can't promise you that everything in your life is going to be fine if you would just obey. There is still suffering in the Christian life. There's still difficulty. Every day we pick up our cross and follow Jesus. But Christian obedience is a little bit like hydration and good sleep is to health care. If you're well hydrated and get good rest, it doesn't mean you'll never need to see the doctor again. But boy, does it help, right? A big dose of obedience is only good for the Christian. It's only good for us. Verse 31 tells us what that growth is going to look and feel like. This is interesting. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. What's this verse describing? As we grow, we will actually begin to see how bad we really were. 
We only really understand our sin and how bad it is when we try not to sin. That's the irony. If we're only worried about our justification, I'm forgiven, and we never try to obey, we actually don't know much about how deep the problem is. Listen to the immortal words of C.S. Lewis. He always has something good to say. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us unless we try to fight it. And Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Do you notice the process? A journey into obedience actually becomes a journey into humility. A journey into obedience becomes the process that we journey into humility. When we're confronted with the fact that we can't do it, and when we're driven again to the one man who can. So, why should we love the law? That's how we honor God. How do we love the the law? God gives us a new heart, and His Spirit He puts within us. And finally, to what end do we love God's law? The answer, that the nations might know. Notice the flow of verses 33 through 36. God is going to build up His people again. How do we see that? Verse 35, they will say, this land is like the Garden of Eden. Verse 36, so that the nations shall know that God is Lord. So when the church begins to grasp that God calls us to live in His ways, people around us should take notice. They should take notice. Wow, those people love each other. Huh, those people are kind to one another. They're rich in good works. Those people are living in some sort of freedom from anxiety that I'm not experiencing. I think that in most people's minds, you kind of have two options. You can either be righteous and judgmental, or you cannot be too concerned about righteousness and be humble, right? That's generally the camps of the legalist and the antinomian. Those are big words. I'm sorry. Righteous, righteous, but not humble, prideful. Unrighteous, but a little kinder. But God's people should be, off, should be able to offer something beautiful in the, to this world, True righteousness and goodness. True righteousness and goodness with a humility because we know that we're broken. When both of those things come together, something really good happens in the people of God. That's what we want. That's what this church needs. That's what this world needs. Wow, you can actually actually grow in righteousness but still love others well, be long-suffering to them. No other philosophy can offer that. The gospel of Jesus offers that beautiful thing to this world. See the way that happens in verses 37 through 38. This is a a small um, chiasm. It's a sentence structure. But basically, the meaning is this. The central 
clause of verses 37 through 38 is that we would be a people who are made ready for sacrifice. The flocks would increase like the sacrificial lambs. See, when the people learn to love God's law, they'll actually start to be a flock ready to sacrifice for the good of others, ready to give of ourselves so that others might know, not just the insiders, but also those on the outside. But do you remember what it takes to be a sacrificial lamb? You have to be unblemished. You can't be sickly or diseased. You can't be lame. You can't have any kind of spot or mark on you whatsoever. That's not us, is it? We can't do that for ourselves. That's not something that we can drum up in our own strength. Who is that pointing to? The only reason we're members of the flock at all, at all is because we know the true unblemished lamb. First Peter 15 through 19, I'm going to read a couple of these clauses. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus Christ, our Lamb of God, was sacrificed for us so that we might be given a new heart, so that we might receive His Spirit, so that we could love the law, so that the nations might come to know. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for this Your Word. We thank You for the challenge that it is to us. Lord, so often I chafe against Your commands. But help me, Lord, to see Your unblemished Lamb of God. Holy Christ Jesus, we pray that we would be found in You, that you would qualify us. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.